of what we talked about last week from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 24. And today we're going to be dealing with nine, nine sin-killing strategies to help us kill sin, following up from what we learned last week. So let's uh, pray and let's invite the Lord to uh, to be our counselor and teacher and helper. Holy Spirit, this morning we are your people and we have gathered because you have made us one. And so we are a body that is unified in mission because you have unified us in your mission. And so we are here because, Chief Shepherd, we want to hear from you, be strengthened by you, be counseled by you, corrected by you, be encouraged by you. And we pray that you would use every means this morning to achieve that in your people. So we ask that you would accomplish all that is necessary for the advancement of Jesus globally and locally, for your glory and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about, in this passage, what it is that we're not to do. We learned what we're not supposed to do. As a body who has followed Christ. And man, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the transforming power of the gospel. Whereby this message, this good news of the kingdom... Is powerful to enter a life and wreck it in order to rebuild it with the powerful indwelling King Jesus. And because that is the case for the Ephesians and because that is our case, we learned the application. And we've been learning the application since we've been in chapter 4 of what it is to walk in this unifying, mysterious, powerful gospel. So we learned what not to do. We learned who we are. And then we learned what we are to do. We're not to return to our unbelieving ways. And the reason is because we've learned Christ. And as a result, we are to put off our old selves. Just be a little grammatical nerd for a minute. And it's important moving forward. As we talk about the application today of putting off our old self. Understand that verse 22 to 24 is in the infinitive. More than you wanted to know. But that's important grammatically because what it does is it helps us to see that verse 22 to 24 is not an additional command, but it is simply the describing of what happens when one has truly learned Christ. Meaning, and I want to emphasize this again, if you are in Jesus... You don't have to put off your old self to be in Jesus. If you are in Christ, you put off your old self because that's what new creatures do. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But if you're in Christ, you will be killing sin. And if you're not killing sin, you're not in Jesus. Okay? So be clear. We're not talking about additional commands. There are no additional commands. Repent and believe. Therefore, in that state, there is no condemnation. But because there is no condemnation, we will put off our old self. That's just the way it is. And so as we move into these verses, these are not additional commands. They are simply statements describing the reality of what New creatures do. People who are in Christ. Who are unified in the body. We've 
learned Christ. And as a result of learning Christ, we put off our old self, we'll be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and we will put on the new self. So in these things, we are to be killing sin. And to quote John Owen, or sin will be killing us. Our old selves belong to our former manner of life. And our old selves are corrupt through deceitful desires. And so, how are we to put on the new self? How are we to put off the old self? How are we to kill sin? How are we, how are we to put to death the deeds of the body? Before we move on to the how, I want to remind you of the why. Lest you mishear. I teach my Old Testament students... It's vital that you get this grammatical reality because this is the way your Bible's laid out. It's not time for Old Testament survey, but we, we understand why before we talk about how. In Exodus chapter 20, it is easy to skip over the introduction to the Ten Commandments and just skip right to the Ten. Never have I heard in the history of children learning the Ten Commandments Never have I heard them quote the introduction to the Ten Commandments, and that's deadly. The indicative comes before the imperative. Always. Always. It does in our text today. The indicative comes before the imperative. The indicative, the mood of a verb, indicating a simple statement of fact. Understand? If you're not a grammar guy or girl, you just... It's a mood of a verb. Okay? And it simply indicates the statement of fact that verb is making. That's all. You know what imperative is, right? It's a command. Do this. Right? In your Bible, the indicative comes before the imperative. Always. The introduction to the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God. Not, I will be the Lord your God if you do these things. It's not what it says. I am Yahweh and I am your God. Who purchased you out of the land of slavery in Egypt. I bought you, you're mine. Therefore, have no other gods before me. You can't reverse that order or you create self-made salvation. There is no self-made salvation. You are bought and purchased by the elective love of Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, you will kill sin. Not because you have to, but because you've been rewired to. You're a new creature. And we come to our passage today. What we discover is this glorious reality of the indicative comes before the imperative. Paul's teachings cast in the indicative. And he uses the infinitive as a tool to help us see that this isn't additional commands. It's just what happens when you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you will love your sin before Jesus and you will die and you will go to hell. But if you're in Christ, you will put a sword in the quivering corpse of sin because you have a great desire to, because holiness is better than sin. So therefore, in union with Christ, our old sinful humanity has been crucified. And we've been raised as new creation life bearers. 
But the reality is indicatives do carry imperatives. Because we are a new creature, we're responsible to live out with all seriousness and with all energy the reality of what God is doing in us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not earn your salvation, but work it out. Live it out. Do it. And so because we are not condemned, we put off the old self. So hear this and hear it carefully. These strategies are not pretending something we're not. If you hear these strategies, and if your ears hear, if I do these, God will like me more, I invite you to Jesus Christ to be transformed and wrecked by the gospel. Because that's not what they are. But if you hear these strategies as tools in your belt to help you be what you are, you hear well. The indicative comes before the imperative and you can never, ever, ever reverse the order. So, nine sin-killing strategies. Now put in the footnote, these are from John Owen. Mortification of sin. If you hadn't read it, go get it. If you have trouble reading Old English, deal with it. If a dyslexic guy can do it, so can you. Suck it up. Help you kill your sin. There's nothing like having to struggle. And I really mean this. There's nothing like having to work at something that will kill sin. Nothing like having to concentrate that will put sin to death. So if it's hard, even better. Even better. Nine sin killing strategies. Number one, these are all on the blog. All on the blog. You can follow along on the blog. Number one, I tried to smooth out the old English. I left some of the words intact because they're glorious words that we don't use anymore that have loaded meaning. Number one, consider, consider, think, think. Consider whether your sin, I'm sorry, consider whether the sin you are contending with, consider whether the sin you're contending with has any dangerous symptoms attending it. Consider whether the sin you're seeking to put a sword in has any symptoms attending it. Example, if you get a cold, before the full-blown thing hits, you have some symptoms, right? Scratchy throat, little runny nose, feeling a little funky, and you feel it coming on. And when you feel it coming on, many of us seek to head it off, right? What do we do? Maybe you go get Zycam. Maybe you start taking 25,000 vitamin C pills. And you start drinking all concoctions of manner of stuff, including moonshine, which works. And you, you do whatever you need to do to head off that cold. Because colds are awful. Right? You attack it. You go after it. Before it assaults you, you assault it. That's John Owen's idea here. Consider whether or not there are some symptoms that come before you trip. Ask yourself the question, what symptoms come along with this particular sin that I need to put a sword in? Recognize these symptoms. Take note of them. Because the symptoms of a cold are typically always the same. Hey, check it out. Satan's not good. He's not sharp. He uses the same old stuff. Pay attention to the symptoms. 
Log them. Pay attention to them. Write them down. Journal. Watch for them. Then get to work by assaulting them and taking the offensive against the sin by killing its spies. If there are symptoms that attend that, go after them. Don't wait. Don't coddle them. Don't invite them in. Put a sword in them instantly. So learn to pay attention to the symptoms of that particular sin that may grab you by the throat. Number two, get a clear and abiding sense upon your mind and your conscience of the guilt, danger, and evil of that sin. The temptation in sin is often to think, well, it's okay. Maybe it's God's gift to me to help me just lean more on the gospel. No. Lie. Lie. God is not the author of sin, nor does He tempt you with sin. The Bible's clear. You have to become convinced that that sin really is evil and it's really not a friendly. It's not your friend that doesn't offer you lasting pleasure. It is a lie. We can't allow ourselves to believe that this sin isn't really all that bad. Here's the reality for you and for me. My sin put Jesus on the cross. And it is the grossest of evils. And it might not be so much the sin itself as much as the it is the object of my sin. And that is the object of my sin is none other than offense against God. It's, be clear, not all sin is equal. That one gets old. All sins equal to God. If it were, why does God give different punishments for different sin? Because not all sin is equal. Let's be clear. That's a nice little colloquialism we like to throw around to make our thing appear not as bad as it really is. No. It is. And we have to be convinced of the reality that my sin isn't a pet. It's not pretty. My sin put Christ on the cross to take the punishment for my rebellion. And the object of my sin is none other than God who my sin offends and is an affront to. And so therefore I have to recognize I've rebelled against the king of the universe. And I need an abiding sense in my mind and conscience that my sin isn't good nor is it okay. In other words, don't hold it close to your chest. As though it's alright. Number three. This was gonna, this is, this is weird. We don't like this language, but this is, this is sin killing. Not all killing is pleasant. If you're a hunter, I don't take delight in killing. I like the result of my killing. Tastes good. And it's part of subduing the earth. But I'm not a killer. I don't appreciate. I don't just wanton take life. So, we don't like killing language, but we're dealing with a serious issue. If we're in Christ, we're going to put to death sin. We've got to kill it. Load your conscience with the guilt of it. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Lest we think, well, I should never feel guilty. Listen carefully. This is Paul 
This is Bible, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces regret. John Owen's not talking about guilt that is the antithesis of Romans 8.1. He's not talking about satanic accusation. It's not what he's talking about. This is John Owen's way of saying that we ought to feel a 2 Corinthians 7.10 godly grief and guilt about my sin. It's the kind of grief that hates sin and loves righteousness. It's the kind of grief and guilt that seeks repentance because holiness is truly better. So load your conscience with godly grief. Because Paul tells us here, this kind of grief produces repentance. And it leads to salvation and there's no regrets. I have never avoided a temptation at which I look back and, God, I wish I'd have given in to that. Never. Seriously, never. But if I have given in, I've always looked back and gone, dang, man, really? And I have regretted it. So load your conscience with a godly grief about that thing. It's okay. There is godly grief that produces life. Life. Number four. Cultivate a constant longing for deliverance from the power of that sin. Man, listen, this is one of the beautiful things that we learn about about our great king. Jesus did not kill joy and enjoyment as a means for producing righteousness. As a matter of fact, he taught that we should... Not just reject getting it all here, but He taught us that we should store it up there and live here for the reward there. Right? Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Because where your treasure is, your heart's there. This broken curse isn't it. Store it up for the coming kingdom because you will inherit the earth. Live for the joy then. You understand? In other words, it is okay to seek a superior delight. And for those of us who are in Christ, Jesus really is our delight. And it is not wrong to make yourself as happy as you can possibly be in Christ. Paul tells us this. Right? The fruit of the Spirit. Against such thing, there's no law. Indulge in all the peace you can handle. Indulge in all the joy you can get your hands on. Lick it up. Enjoy it. Right? Cultivate a longing to be delivered from that thing that kills your joy. Hear that? Because Listen. If you enjoy your sin more than Jesus, you're not a Christian. If you enjoy Christ more than your sin, you will fight it because you can't help it. That's what the gospel does. It transforms us, makes us new creatures. So cultivate a longing for deliverance from that thing with superior joy in Christ. You feeling that? 
cultivates this idea of planting a seed, fertilizing it, watering it, weeding around it, and caring for it in order to receive the fruit that's planted. Growing up, I spent my spring breaks planting corn. We can go to the beach and sit around and goof off planting corn. And I at least figured, if I'm out here cutting rows and putting silver queen in the ground, anybody silver queen? God, Lord, praise Jesus. I look forward to the day when the, the ears came out and the silk turned brown, letting us know it's time to eat. And you rip the ear off and you cook the ear, you cut it off and you make glory. Heaven comes down and glory fills the soul, right? You, you cultivate and you work hard knowing that there is coming the reward, right? It, this, this is Owen's point. Long for the fruit of righteousness. Cultivate a desire to let this thing that kills joy go. And live for the supreme joy of later reward of following Christ. Plant holiness. Fertilize it. Water it. Weed out from around it things that want to choke it in. And didn't Jesus tell us a parable about that? Seed fell on crowded ground. And the weeds grew up around it and choked it out. Jesus taught us only one kind of soil is soil at which salvation visits, and that's good soil. So anything that starts to crowd out joy in Christ, you must weed it. Don't get comfortable with the crowding in of sin. Grow a longing for what it would be like to no longer be beset with that blasted thing. I used the word and went back and changed it because the negative connotation to it, but just I used this word and I'm thinking that, so I shouldn't have probably said that out loud. And you're probably wondering what word did you use? But imagine. Have a healthy imagination of what it would be like to be free of that thing. Imagine what it would be like to not be beset with that anymore. Kind of like when I drive, when I'm coming, coming here and I see the Mega Million sign. And I imagine what it would be like if somebody else won it and gave me half or something, right? And I, and I start imagining what it would be like to have $250 million sitting in all various interest-bearing accounts. and oh, Right? And you start thinking about the things you could do, right? Amen. Thank you, Dub. <laughs> take that. Take that. Transfer it to what would it be like if that didn't bother me ever. Cultivate a longing for that. Pray. Ask the Father to liberate you from that. Ask, seek, and knock. Right? Ask, seek, and knock. Luke 18, 1 through 8. Jesus told them this parable to the effect that they should always pray and not lose heart. He tells a story about a widow who continually came to an unrighteous judge to get justice. And finally, because of her persistence, he gave in. And Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not now God, your Father, give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? It's a rhetorical question. If the unrighteous judge is going to give justice, I'm a good Father. Yes, I will give that to you. 
So pray, ask, seek, and knock, and wait for the Father, good Father, to give you fish and bread, not snakes and rocks, because He's a good Father. So ask, cultivate that longing for deliverance from it. Number five, consider whether the sin is rooted in your nature. And exacerbated by your temperament. I wrote a little mean sentence here. And sort of pointed at myself. I just want to qualify that. Really consider whether or not this particular sin. Or that particular sin is the result of the fact that I'm just a jerk. And that my jerkiness is really producing the sin that causes the problem. For example... If your sin is lust, the objects of your lust may not need to be what is being dealt with as much as the temperament of dissatisfaction and lack of contentment. Does that make sense? It may not be the object of your lust that you need to remove. It Maybe we need to consider that the problem isn't me lusting for something. It is the fact that I have a discontentment problem. My temperament needs repairing. I need to let go of the idol that I hold near to my heart that I cherish more than Christ. It may be my temperament. It may be my bent that is the problem. So consider whether or not that sin is rooted in a nature problem exacerbated by a temperament problem. Number six. Consider what occasions and advantages your sin has taken to exert and put forth itself. And watch against them all. In other words, take a consideration of a place in your life that that sin is taking advantage of because defenses need to be shored up. Learn to take note of weak spots and then shore up the defense. Example, if your problem is materialism, and getting the newest thing drives all of your labor... To the exclusion of a passion for Christ. And the discipline of self-denial. We sat here Friday night. From 7 to midnight. And there are college students in this room. Watching the simulcast of Cross Conference. Cross for the Nations. And we were and we're seeing the Lord raise up out of this body. More people to go to the hard places. Praise the Lord. But one of the things we emphasized and we talked about and was taught to us is the reality that senders are as vital as goers. There are no two classes of Christianity. A goer is not above a sender. Okay? God, we pray that the Lord will raise up people who will suffer financially in order to fund the goers. That your suffering may not be losing your head at the hands of ISIS. It may be financial insecurity here to fund those who are going there. The call to suffer is not less here. Our problem is we love stuff more than Jesus. 
And so it's not my job to fund it. I hadn't given a tithe in two years. It's not my job. Repent, believe the gospel. You need to get saved. Where are the people who will suffer financially for those who are willing to suffer physically for the advance of the gospel to be good senders? Right? My problem is materialism. And I, it drives me to the exclusion of a passion for Christ and the global advance of the gospel and the glorious gift of self-denial and managing God's resources for His kingdom well. Then take note of what exacerbates the desire to get something new. What leads... To that desire to get something new. If it's the constant visiting of your favorite sporting good website. Then maybe put a block on the website. Have your wife or a friend block that site. And check your internet history. And make sure you give up your credit card. The occasion would be the website. You know you're a materialist. So what exacerbates it? The website. There you go. Here's a neat trick. This is what I do. I have my homepage. As soon as I open a new tab, it goes to desiringgod.org. And there's a Piper message for the day. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> Doing missions with dying is Dane. I just exit. I'm going to go do something else, right? <sighs> Dang it. It's hard to, hard to see that and then want to go buy something. Well... Look for the occasion and advantage your sin takes to exert itself. Cut it off. Number seven. This is my favorite. This is good. It's manly. This is gruntable, man. Rise mightily against the first actings and conceptions of your sin. Get your sword quickly. Rise up mightily. Don't sit back like a little passive thing and pet it. Get up, get your sword, put it in the sin. Deal with it, be a man. Oh, sin. I love my sin. Come here, sin. No, kill it. Put a sword in it. Do whatever you have to do. Rise mightily against the first actings and conceptions of your sin. Number eight. Meditate in such a way... That you're filled at all times. This is another one that's not good for 21st century. We're 21st, yeah, we're 21st century. I'm so used to saying Buck Rogers in the 21st century when I was a kid that that, I don't think we're in the 21st century now because that's way out there, but we are. So in the 21st century, psychologically and sociologically, we don't like this kind of stuff. We, we are told in secular world of this type of counseling that these things are not good and you need to be self-actualized and all that garbage that's atheistic and Marxist in its presuppositions. You take my apologetics class and we'll study all that. Let me just say it. Here you go. Meditate in such a way that you're filled at all times with self-abasement. And thoughts of your own vileness. Let me say it in modern. Don't buy your own press. Don't buy your own press. 
Meditate in such a way that you're filled with self-abasement, thoughts of your own vileness. In other words, let the biblical balance rule your mind. Your Bible will do this for you. This is great. You don't have to make this up. You really don't have to make this up. If you'll read your Bible, it will do it for you. The Bible will call you a saint at one moment and then turn around and talk about your sin the next. And you're like, what am I? Yes. Be convinced of the fact that apart from Christ, I am vile. And only in Christ am I accepted as a saint. So yes. Be convinced. Let the Bible convince you at all times to be self-abased and recognize that we are sinners radically in need of a Savior. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. That's what Paul does in Romans 7 and 8. I can't stop sinning. Who's going to rescue me from this trash? Jolly paraphrase. Romans 8 1. Thank God there's no condemnation in Christ. So let the Bible's balance on our identity Help us not to buy our own press. You've not arrived, and hey, just just an FYI, you're not going to arrive until they put you in the ground. Your job is to fight until you take your last breath. Number nine, listen to what God says to your soul. Man, this requires ears to hear. Okay? Listen to what God says to your soul and do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it. But hearken to, that's a great 1600s word, hearken what He says to your soul. In other words, long for, acclimate to what God says. Do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it, but hearken to what He says for your soul. Listen to this carefully. Because here's the deal. We can lie to ourselves and buy our own lie. Notice that? If you tell yourself something long enough, you'll find out, you'll find out you believe it and then propagate it as truth when all the time you're just lying. That's how broken we are. So, well, I know you're pleased with me, even though I continue to just, like a dog visits its vomit, go back, I'm, but I'm good. Okay. Seek the Father's peace, not your own psychological soothing. Father's grace, listen to this, this is, this is huge. And that, when, I was write, when I wrote this, this is, for, this is for me, and I hope it's for you, so just hear it. Father's grace to bother your soul is life-saving. Learn to discern by the Spirit the difference between satanic condemnation and spirit-wrought eclipse of the soul to drive us to humility and repentance. Learn to tell the difference between satanic condemnation and a spirit-wrought eclipse of the soul to drive you to repentance. One is for death. The other is a precious gift of the Lord for life. Listen, the lie of the materialistic, naturalistic age is that you're supposed to be psychologically happy all the time. In your material surroundings. No, it's just not true. Read the Psalms. 
There are times David's not psychologically in a healthy place. Bash the babies against the rocks. I praise you. Those are called imprecatory psalms. There were seasons you hear David praying, Oh Lord, where are you? Oh, oh Lord, if you do not rescue me. Oh Lord, where are you? You think, think, think God was off playing tiddlywinks? No. No. It was the Lord's good grace to prepare David to be king. Seek the Father's peace, not your own psychological soothing. The Lord may just graciously afflict your soul for a season to drive you to your face and there find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. That's point number one. We're going to wrap up here pretty quickly. So point number two. Those are the nine sin-killing strategies. So let's finish up the rest of the passage. Verse 22. Because we have learned Christ... Verse 22, to put off your old self. Because we've learned Christ, we put off our old self. That's what we just talked about. There are nine strategies to put off your old self. Which belongs to your former manner of life. Belongs in the past, what you were. You're not that anymore. Because you've learned Christ. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. That what you were is corrupt. Your desires are deceitful. So you need new desires. And those are desires of Christ. That's what we've been talking about. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God. And true righteousness and holiness. So what's happening. What's happening as we're putting off the old self. What's happening as we're using these nine sin killing strategies. What is going on in us. As we're putting off the old self. Well he tells us here in verse 23. That through putting off the old self. Remember this is, this is why this infinitive is important here. Through putting off the old self. We are being renewed in the spirit of our mind. Or, or, as we're renewed in our minds, we put off the old self. Because we've learned Christ, we're putting off the old self. This is what we do because we're new creatures. And so what's happening is we've learned Christ, and we are being renewed in the spirit of our minds. That is, because we've learned Christ, our thinking has changed and is changing. Renewed here is that infinitive and implies the putting off of the old self is to be renewed. Because we're in Christ, we're putting off the old self. And as a result, our mind is changing. Our thinking is shifting. Being renewed is not an additional command. It's the reality revealed as one puts off their old self. 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us we have the mind of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're putting off the old self. And as you're putting off the old self, the reality is your mind, your thinking is shifting. Why? Because you have Jesus' mind. Meaning, we have the mind of Christ and yet our old self is corrupted with deceitful desires. And if we're in Christ, we're going to put them off because the mind of Christ, the thinking of Jesus, won't let us keep them on anymore. You have the mind of Christ. If you have the mind of Christ, you're not loving your sin. You're hating your sin, putting a sword in it because you have the mind of Christ. And because you have the mind of Christ, you're putting off your old self. Because you've learned Christ. 
Because we're in Christ, we put off the old self, and we discover that we have different thinking. We learn to think like Christ. We do and can think like Jesus. It's awesome. Awesome. We have the beliefs of Jesus. We have the passions and desires and ends of Jesus. If you don't want what Jesus wants, you are not in Christ. But Paul said to the Ephesians, you've learned Christ. And so you put that off and you think like Jesus. So be unified. Backing up to chapter 3 and chapter 2. Be one. No division among you. No ethnic wall of division. One body. Because we have the thinking of Christ. Wow. As we put off the old self, we'll discover the immeasurable delight of having the thinking of Jesus. We'll begin to think Scripture. Brought to mind by the Spirit. With holy and glorious applications in our present moment. Underline that and italicize that and put an exclamation point behind it. We'll begin to think Scripture brought to mind by the Spirit with holy and glorious applications in our present moment. This is part of the beauty of walking with Jesus. As we're putting off the old self, the Spirit, Jesus told us, the Holy Spirit would remind us of everything He said. And we start thinking Scripture, not because you're good, but because Jesus is good. And all of a sudden, in this moment, these holy applications of that text come to mind. You're thinking, where did that come from? Jesus. Because your mind is shifting. You have the mind of Christ. What a glorious reality. So through putting off the old self, we're experiencing renewed minds. Verse 24. Through putting off the old self, because we've learned Christ, we're putting on the new self that is in the likeness of God. Paul adds these qualifiers in verse 24, truly right and holy. So because we've learned Christ, we're putting off the old self, we have the mind of Christ, and we're putting on the new self. Putting on the new self is not an additional command, but it's what's happening as we put off the old self. Why? Because we're new creations, the Bible tells us. We're new creations that have the root of sin that remains. And by the Spirit, we're constantly putting that sin to death so that the new creation can and will be dominant. The only way you will taste the power of being a new creation in Christ is through the execution of that sin that continues to cover up the reality of who you are in Christ. And here's the glorious good news. If you're in Christ, you will kill that sin. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work expects you to finish it. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. He will get you there. But He requires you to join Him in the action of putting a sword in your sin. He tells us here, this new self is created in the likeness of God. Imagine the image of God fully restored in you and me. The image of God fully... And by the way, this is what it's going to be like to be in the kingdom. Resurrected bodies that aren't broken anymore like Adam had before the fall, like Eve had before the fall. 
the image of God fully intact. The new self is truly righteous and holy. A fully restored image bearer, as fully restored image bearers, our righteousness is real and our holiness is real. Often we wrestle with the reality that sometimes what looks like righteousness for me, I know isn't. And what looks like holiness for me, I know isn't. But the day is coming that as I continue to put off my old self and I put on the new self, that this new self is really righteous and really holy. Said another way, true righteousness and holiness puts off the old self so that the new creation will show itself as the work of King Jesus. This is why as we do life together in the church, we should grow in unity, not dissolve in disunity. If we dissolve in disunity, it's not because Jesus failed, it's because we failed to put a sword in our sin. Sin creates two camps, always. So as we grow in Christ, we shouldn't... We shouldn't follow, I mean, just, geez, second law thermodynamics. In, in this broken world, like entropy, you know all that stuff, physics, right? In this broken world, things move from a degree of order to disorder, right? In the new creation, it won't be that way. Things will be perfectly ordered and stay that way. I won't ever have to clean a room again the way I have to now. Things won't break. And as we live inside the community of the kingdom of God, inside the church, if we're going backward, it's not because of Jesus. It's because a bunch of sinners refuse to submit to Christ. To put off the old self is to reject sin. To put on the new self is to show the glory of Jesus. But Three Rivers Community Church, we've learned Christ, haven't we? We've put on the new self and we're renewed in our minds and we're putting off the old self so that we as a unified body will make much of Jesus together. Amen? That's who we are. That's who we are. That's the culture of this fellowship. That's the ethos that drives us. As we're in Christ. We've learned Christ. And because of that, for the glory of God, we build the church local and global by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. Bible tells us in Psalm 141, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's a command. It's an imperative. And the indicative is because you're His. So Three Rivers, you belong to Jesus Christ. You've learned Christ. So praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. So why do we sing? Because it's fitting. It's pleasant and it's right because we're Christ. Let's pray and sing together. Father, because we are in Christ, because of the powerful gospel this morning, we are transformed. We've learned Christ. And so we pray that that reality would be tasted, that you would pour out for us in this moment an experience of the kingdom, power, joy, transformation, growth and grace killing of sin, enjoyment of fellowship, 
superior joy in Christ? Would you do all those things in this moment? Would you give us enough fuel to get to tomorrow morning? And would you do it all over again for us as we are separated and long to be back together? We pray that you would feed us with your power, the power of the kingdom, the power of the coming age, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming power of the gospel. Do that, Lord. Make this moment special. Not because we need special things, but because we want to make much of you. We want you to be exalted in our praises. So Jesus, accomplish all those things now for your glory and for our joy.